0: not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we'll... Take a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use first John one nine if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to come together as a body of believers, to uh, worship you through the highest form of worship, which is to learn how you think, to learn about your plan for our lives, to learn how you have designed a perfect plan for for history, for the church age believer, for our spiritual life, and for us to learn how to think and live uh, consistent with that plan, for us to learn the doctrines that you have revealed in your word that give us the procedures for living life in such a way that it honors and glorifies you both in time and in eternity. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, you would help us to understand these things and to see how they apply to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage is in First John, or excuse me, Third John, verses 2 through 4. We're going to see if the... Projector actually works. Turned off once during the break, so we'll just have to be flexible. Before we get started, just to for those of you who weren't here the first hour, uh, the group that, head, that headed over to Kiev on Thursday arrived safe and sound, and yesterday they got an opportunity to uh, go into the center of town and to do a few things and to uh, meet with some of the other uh, Ukrainian students, teenagers, and I guess uh, college-age, young 20-year-olds 20, 20 who are involved with running this camp over there. And there are going to be 50 kids at the camp. They range in age from about 7 to about 12 or 13. And it's going to be a tremendous opportunity for them to uh, teach the Word. Yesterday afternoon they went to the cancer hospital, the Children's Cancer Hospital there, and got an opportunity to teach a, a little Bible study there for the kids. And then, uh, we, the money that we were able to send with, uh, Dan over there is helping to pay for five of those kids in the cancer hospital to come to camp this week. So this is something you need to keep, uh, in mind and continue to pray for and pray for them there. Uh, they had church, uh, this morning at uh the Word of Life Church there and then they will be going from or they left right after church which was actually about 5 hours ago to start the camp so they've been uh in that new situation for 3 or 4 hours and they'll be in camp till next Saturday and then they'll come back and then the next week they'll be involved in other hospital ministries and children's ministries that uh Jim Myers has uh working over in Kiev. So they've had a great time and quite a cross-cultural experience. Okay, uh, Third John chapter 1, 3 John verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. We studied this several weeks ago, and we saw that what John is saying is taking a standard form of greeting that was used giving it a new twist, a spiritual emphasis by adding the phrase just as your soul prospers, that what really gives us prosperity in life is not finances, it's not success, it's not the possession of material things, it's not the presence of all of the details of life that we think will make us happy and bring us a certain amount of fulfillment, but it has to do with soul prosperity, which is related to spiritual growth. This is the development of his thought in the next couple of verses, and that has to do with... um, with truth and joy. There's two key words in verses 3 and 4. And that is, I rejoiced and I have no greater joy. And both of them relate to uh, the truth that he knows is being learned and applied by Gaius and those around him. Now, we looked at the fact that there were, uh, in terms of the soul, there were certain enemies of the soul. and it boils down to the sin nature and arrogance where I introduced a fifth arrogant skill. So we'll just briefly review those. Self-absorption, where we focus on self, leading to self-indulgence, where we give in to all those self-centered desires. And then, of course, we have to justify it, so we come up with really good rationales for, uh, justifying the self-absorption and self-indulgence. And, and see, you don't, you don't think about these things. You go from step one to step two in a heartbeat. It is the natural inclination of Uh, The sin nature to be arrogant. And so before we even know that we're arrogant, we've already justified it to ourselves and we're not even thinking objectively anymore. That leads to subjectivity and self-deception, which leads to the fifth arrogant skill, which is self-deification. We're really setting ourselves up as God. God is the one who determines absolutes for the universe and God is the one who determines the agenda for the creature. What happens in arrogance is the creature wants to determine determine the agenda rather than the creator, and so he places himself in the position of God. That is the enemy of uh, the soul, and it is only as we deal with arrogance through walking by means of the Spirit and learning doctrine and applying doctrine to every area of our, uh, first of all, our thought life, that we can reverse the process of arrogant domination of the soul and begin to develop a healthy soul. Verse 3, John says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. This introduces the two main ideas of joy and walking in truth and the central role of truth in the Christian life. Now, this, of course, brings us into direct conflict with much of what goes on in a pagan culture surrounding us. First of all, we have to deal with the fact that in terms of joy, there are cultural concepts of what produces joy in life. And the world around us says that all kinds of things produce real joy, fulfillment, stability, and it's usually centered upon something in the created realm, some detail of life, whether it's marriage, family, spouse, whether it's centered around people or possessions or things or or money and the things that money can buy. We look to circumstances and people to be the basis for happiness. And that is drilled into us today in ways I don't think that has ever been to happen in human history through the media of advertising. Again and again and again we're promised that if we, you know, brush with the right toothpaste or drive the right car or wear the right clothes, then all that life has to offer will be ours in abundance. And that is a mental attitude that is constantly inculcated into us from all the media around us from the time that we are infants. So as we come into the Christian life, we have to learn to reprogram our thinking according to Bible doctrine and not according to the cosmic system around us. And since joy and happiness are some of the most misunderstood ideas in our culture, we're taking a couple of weeks to go through these details. Now, last week we didn't get into the text of Third John simply because we had, a, uh, we had an extended communion service. Part of the reason for that was that in the first hour, we were covering the communion passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I didn't get everything covered there. And second, it was communion Sunday, so I, it was important to take what we had studied in the first hour and apply that directly to what was going on in the second hour. Furthermore, we had an interesting in-house situation last week that I used as a little practicum drill on Dan as he's continuing his seminary studies in preparation for the ministry. And When I got home, we were talking about the Kiev trip and final bits of preparation. And I said, well, I've got a drill for you. It's Communion Sunday. You've got your notes all squared away. You know what you're going to teach on that morning in terms of regular class. You have communion service. And yet all of a sudden you look out in the congregation. Of course, with a congregation our size, it's always easy to spot the visitors. And you know that there are various visitors that have come in. And because one was a friend of one member of the congregation and told me about, I knew that that she came from a, a Roman Catholic background. And then I don't know if anybody knows we had like three rows of solid rows of guests down here, and it was um uh, Dave's friend Eleanor uh, who had written the article on the church for the little Preston pipeline and we knew from our interview with her when she interviewed us a couple of weeks ago that she was uh, was a Roman Catholic, and she brought her two or three of her kids and their spouses and neighbors. and I mean, there were like 12 of them down here, none of whom I knew ever heard the gospel before. So coming from a Roman Catholic background especially, you start explaining communion. Of course, one of the first things we talk about is confession. Well, if you listen to that through a Roman Catholic grid, what is that person going to hear? See, I can't sit up here as a communicator of the word and think that somebody there is going to be reinterpreting what i'm saying within some grid without challenging and straightening out that grid so and of course the whole idea of communion and the lord's table in contrast to the roman catholic con- idea of the mass and uh, transubstantiation and the ongoing uh, sacrifice of christ can't be allowed to stand so that also fit in with the idea that I had to, was was planning to do a more detailed look at communion, but not as detailed as I did, simply because you you have to sometimes preach to the moment, and you never know when that's going to happen. And sometimes God has a different agenda than even the pastor when he gets in the pulpit, and he may he has to be flexible. So I uh, had to use that as a little practicum for. For Dan and say, you know, you just have to be flexible. You get up there and all of a sudden see that you've got 12 or 15 people that are new and they don't understand anything and you have some intelligence that they're coming out of a, uh, out of a background may not even, may not be saved and probably are very confused on exactly what you're doing in communion. Well, you just have to go with the flow. So there was no third John uh, message last week and uh, I got some positive response from some of the people, so I don't know if the, how the Lord used that, but they all heard the gospel, and that the Lord will use in their life, we hope. Okay, we're back on the doctrine of happiness. The doctrine of happiness, and last time I, we covered about what I now have is about seven or eight points, seven or eight points. Points, and they build off of the word for rejoice in 3 John 3, for I rejoice. It's an aorist active imperative of the verb chiro. And then we have the cognate noun in the next verse, kara, for joy. So John says, I rejoiced greatly. And the word translated greatly is the adjective or the adverb leon which indicates extent. It is a a comparative adverb indicating that his joy now has, has increased, and it is related to a particular event, when brethren came and testified. And we begin by raising the question, well, Pastor, haven't you always taught that joy is not based on circumstances? That's right. Joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is based on the truth in your soul. But there are different categories of joy, and so we have to examine that because this is where people get confused. There's a lot of folks who get misled and uh, confused when they become a Christian, thinking that everything's going to be great and wonderful, and they're going to have the joy of the Lord. And now they're a Christian. They're always going to be happy. And then about three or four weeks or months down the road, something happens in their life, and they're depressed and discouraged and feel defeated. And they wonder, well, what happened to my joy? I must not be a Christian because I'm not happy anymore. And so there's extremely superficial concept of joy and happiness that permeates much of Christianity. So we have to deal with that and just exactly what the Scripture says. So... John is emphasizing the fact that this joy comes when they come and give a certain witness. The word here is kairo, related to kara, the word for, the noun for joy or delight, which means to have joy, To and sometimes it has the idea of being, uh, having exaltation. The context itself is going to determine whether or not this is talking about inner happiness as a solid, stable mental attitude, or the exaltation or exuberance related to a particular event. We looked at some other words, such as uh, agaliasis, which is translated exaltation or exuberant joy in various passages. Euphrasune, which is used in Acts 2.28 in talking about joy or a positive mental attitude, a compound of the Prefix eu, meaning well or good, and frasune, having to do with a mental attitude. And then the word makarios, translated blessed frequently and sometimes rendered as happiness. These are the key words translated translated joy or happiness in the New Testament. Then in contrast, the antonym is lupe for sorrow. We have that word found in a number of passages, and in Romans 9, 1, and 2, we see a particular emphasis here. Here uh, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's in fellowship, he is walking by means of the Holy Spirit, and at the same time that he's walking by means of the Holy Spirit, well, the overhead's gone again. We'll see if we can get it back. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing witness by means of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit, he's walking by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5, that produces the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy. Joy comes by means of God the Holy Spirit. In Romans 9:2 then Paul says, in contrast to that, That I have great sorrow. He is walking by means of the Spirit, yet nevertheless, he has great sorrow. And this is the word lupe, and continual grief, and this is the word adune. And these are the two words that are used in contrast to joy in the New Testament. So the question then is, how can he have joy, and at the same time, he has sorrow and grief? These are not ideas that are contradictory to one another. and This is one thing that I want to drill into you in this study is that you can have joy and happiness, the inner happiness of the Lord, and at the same time have an element of sorrow and sadness, but it is not at the very core of your thinking. There's two types of happiness. We'll draw a circle here the core inner happiness of the believer. This is unshakable contentment. It's tranquility that no matter what happens, you know that God is in control. God takes care of the details of your life. And even when you are in a state of loss, even when you have lost a dear family member, a spouse, a child, even when you're going through some unimaginable suffering, maybe extended periods of suffering where you're unemployed for one or two or three years. The only jobs you can get are are flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, and that's only when they're extra busy around Christmas or some other time of the year. But even when you're going through whatever that test is that is particularly difficult for you, you can still have this unshakable contentment and tranquility, though there are times when there will be sorrow and sadness, just as there are times when there will be circumstantial elation, emotion, and exuberance. So there's two categories of happiness here. There's that happiness that is non-emotional and non-circumstance related, that is built on doctrine, that is at the very core of the soul. And then, as a result of Things that are going on in life around us, we can have times of exuberance and excitement, just as John was pr- quite pleased and excited when he heard uh, a good report that those around Gaius were walking by means of the truth. And he says, I have no, in verse 4, he will say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So if he hears the children don't walk in truth, he loses his happiness? No. It's just at that point he would have sorrow and grief as Paul did in Romans two, but it would not destroy that inner happiness that stabilizes his soul to handle whatever the, the circumstances are. Uh, Paul also made the point in uh, 1 Thessalonians that during times of grief or loss, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. So the believer will grieve. He will have sorrow. He will have sadness. He will also have times of happiness and excitement and elation. But what, the, what we have from the Holy Spirit as a result of spiritual growth is an inner happiness and stability that gives us strength to go through any set of circumstances, whether it has to do with adversity or prosperity. So this is true even of our Lord. Our Lord whose happiness was given to us he said my joy I give to you in John chapter 15 Matthew 26:38 he said my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death so if the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity could experience a tremendous sorrow, and yet at the same time his happiness never diminished or decreased, then the same was true for each one of us. So when you have those times in life, and we all do, when you feel sorrow, you feel sadness, and it, remember this is not the end. This is not uh, does not mean you're out of fellowship. It may mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't mean that uh, God has deserted you. It just means that you are having normal, typical human responses to negative situations and circumstances. The test is how you handle that. It is not wrong to go through grief and to feel a sense of sorrow. There are times when you will go through life that because of whatever happens, you will feel almost physically oppressed by sorrow or sadness. It could happen because of a job loss, extended testing. It could happen as a result of any number of things. But it's what you do with that. See, once you start responding that way, that's only a natural response to loss once you start responding that way and letting that dictate your thoughts and your actions, that's when you fail the test. Emotional testing is some of the most difficult testing that we can go through because our emotions want us to go one way and we can give into it and have a pity party. And we can quit working or quit doing whatever we know to do and give up on life. Or we can continue to be engaged, studying the Word, claiming promises, and moving forward. And the test is to do that even in the midst of of grief or loss. And a lot of it will will be affected by how much doctrine you have fortified your soul with before you hit that time of grief or loss. But even our Lord, even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's facing the test of the cross, was exceedingly sorrowful. So don't get the idea that that's necessarily in and of itself sinful or a sign of spiritual failure. So let's look at this doctrine of uh Happiness, we covered a lot of it the last time, so I'm going to hit the first first uh, several points fairly rapidly. Point number one, there are three categories of happiness. Point number one, three categories of happiness. Category one is emotional happiness. This is true for believer and unbeliever. We just get excited and stimulated about things that we enjoy, and this is true for anyone. The trouble is that this becomes something used by Satan to counterfeit the genuine happiness and contentment which God has provided for the believer. You begin to identify that kind of emotional stimulation with the inner happiness that Jesus Christ provides, and that is uh, the path of error. We live in an age when life is determined Uh, in In the pagan culture around us by stimulation, always looking for something new, something exciting, something to stimulate our emotions. And that comes from the idea that emotional happiness is the path to real happiness. The second category of happiness is what I call human good happiness. Human good happiness is also available to believer and unbeliever alike, and that, for the unbeliever, can be derived from simple compliance with the laws of divine establishment. This is somebody who's learned some basic uh, human good virtues, such as self-discipline, and uh, someone with a solid work ethic, someone who is oriented to authority and has a sense of honor and integrity. And as a result of that, as they live in a manner consistent with that, they can have a measure of stability and they can have a measure of happiness. But this is not the happiness that we're talking about or concerned about in the New Testament. Two key passages that are principles. First of all, this happiness that we have in the New Testament comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He told the disciples in John chapter 15, My joy I give to you. And then in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 21 and 22, joy is one of the fruits or the production of the Holy Spirit. This makes that joy a different kind of joy than what we find in some other passages of Scripture. And it all u- utilizes the same word, Cairo, uh, for a verb or kara for a noun, and the Greek, and context is going to determine whether it's talking about an emotional or human good type of happiness or whether it's talking about the the third category of happiness, which is the inner happiness that is produced by God the Holy Spirit, and which is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a happiness that is a state of the soul. It's not emotional. it's the result of volition. It's the result of choosing to respond positively to the Word of God, and it is the result of thinking in terms of God's plan for history, God's plan for your life. It's not based on something that someone or something does for you. It's based on the absolutes of God's Word and your relationship to Him. Therefore, it is the result of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So when we look at happiness, there's three categories, emotional happiness, human good happiness, and inner happiness. Then we come to the second point. The second point is that happiness is a state of the soul. Happiness is a state of the soul. It's a result of your choices, and it's a determination of whether you're oriented to to doctrine or you're not oriented to doctrine. So point number four, happiness comes from thinking Bible doctrine. Only doctrine gives us an orientation to reality. You can't be oriented to reality apart from the truth of God's word. What happens with most people is they achieve happiness by living in some sort of state of denial. They are just either ignoring reality, they're acting as if uh, reality is really something else, or they are just in a fantasy world, but they're not engaged with the present reality of a situation. And this often is true when people go through extended testing and they feel helpless. And rather than being engaged with the uh, negative situation, which they feel defeated by, rather than applying doctrine, they just act as if it isn't there. That's not there. Somehow things will work out. Sort of the mystical faith in faith idea that I'm just going to believe that eventually things will work out. That's not doctrine. That's not biblical. The Bible doesn't teach faith in faith. The Bible teaches faith in specific promises of God, and sometimes things don't get better. Sometimes those circumstances are never going to change. Sometimes you're going to be in a certain set of circumstances that are going to be true from now until the end of your life. You think about the many martyrs who who were arrested uh, for their stand in Christianity in the various totalitarian or oppressive regimes throughout the history of the church age, whether it's the Roman Empire, whether you're talking about things that occurred during the a Protestant Reformation where gospelers, as they were called, that is the reformers in England, were thrown into prison where they were tortured and some were burned at the stake. Uh, their life never got any better. They went, some of them lost all of their property, all of their possessions, some of them lost all of their family and it didn't come back. You know, Job was restored tenfold, but that was Job. That's not a promise that God is going to restore everything tenfold for every believer, because if that's true, then there are millions of believers that that have a case and a grudge to bear against God. But God is always going to provide us with the provisions to endure whatever that testing may be. And uh, I frequently think about the fact that, that my mother had polio in 1952, And she endured all of the physical suffering from that and the limitations from that for the rest of her life. It never got any better, and there's no hope that it would get better. In fact, because of other health problems that that came, it just got worse and worse and worse for her. And that may be true, and there may be a number of different reasons for that suffering, all related to the doctrine of suffering. It may be a result of of uh, personal sin, it may be divine discipline, it may also be uh, testing for the sake of uh, just teaching doctrine we never We never know about some testing what its real reason is until we 're in heaven that 's the message of job by the way it 's a lengthy book to teach that message. But we're clued in at the beginning of Job on why Job goes through that testing, because Satan is challenging God and saying, well, look at Job. Look at Job. Job just worships you because you give him everything. He's healthy. He's he's prosperous. He's got a wonderful family, fantastic children. You know, the wife, well, we're not sure about her, but everybody else is great. So let me let me take all that away from. Him and see if he still worships you, God. He won't do that. And so the Lord allowed Satan to test Job. You can do anything but touch him. And then later He allowed him to bring health suffering onto Job. But when Job goes through all of his ups and downs, and we see his rationale, we see the testing, we see his friends who say, "Well, Job, it's all due to sin," and Job thinks, "No, it's not due to sin. There's no sin in my life that this would be directly tied to." When it's all said and done, finally Job begins to complain to God. And then at the latter part of the book, God confronts Job. And in that, God says, you need to just trust me. It's in that context that Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And when you get to the end of Job, Job passes the test. Job is restored tenfold what he lost but Job never knows what we know about chapters 1 and 2. God never tells him what went on in chapters 1 and 2. Job doesn't have a clue at the, any more of a clue at the end of the book why he went through the suffering than he had at the beginning. What he learns is that the purpose of testing sometimes is for spiritual advance to learn how to apply doctrine and to learn simply to trust God even when on our, from our creaturely vantage point we don't have a clue what's going on and will not until we're face-to-face with the Lord in heaven. And even then we may not fully understand or appreciate why we went through certain things. So happiness comes from thinking doctrine and not from circumstances. Fifth point, unhappy people seek happiness by controlling their environment, people in their environment such as family, friends, and loved ones, and they do this in one of two ways. They do this by either trying to impose some sort of guilt complex or guilt reaction on those around them. Actually, it's not two ways. I have three different ways. There are many different ways that people try to, try to, uh, control people around them. One is through guilt, one's through uh, arousing pity in others, uh, the poor me syndrome, getting involved in a pity party so that other people will uh, give you attention and then you feed off of that attention. This is the kind of people that I call uh, spiritual vampires. They show up in churches every now and then. Remember, what makes a vampire uh, successful is that they feed off of the, uh, they get their nourishment from feeding off of other other people. And... Uh, that is the key idea in a, in a vampire, a spiritual vampire is they feed off of other people. They, they want attention. They want approbation for other people. And the other thing about a vampire is that a vampire doesn't see its reflection in the mirror. And so the spiritual vampire never sees how the word of God applies to them. When you hold up the mirror of God's word, they don't see that that any of this applies to them whatsoever. They're just in church for the sake of trying to uh, siphon off as much attention and approbation as they can from other believers, thinking that somehow that will make them happy. So you have uh, manipulation through guilt complex, manipulation through self-pity, and then just generally trying to manipulate and control uh, everything behind the scenes uh, to make sure everyone acts and behaves the way they want them to. We, you all know people who are in your family like that who are constantly trying to make everybody happy, working behind the scenes, running around, making sure that, you know, mom does this and or doesn't say that, that when Thanksgiving comes that somebody doesn't come and do this or somebody else doesn't say that and therefore they'll have some level of peace and they're so busy trying to control the environment so they can be happy. And this is somebody who's completely disoriented to reality. Another pro- thing that you see about unhappy people is people who are uh, having, have problems with authority are basically unhappy people. People who have problems with authority are unhappy people. When you see uh, a, a wife that is very controlling and dominating of her husband, she's a miserable individual. She's trying to gain happiness by controlling her husband. Uh, you see it with other people trying to control people in authority or who have problems with authority. They are basically miserable people. And so unhappy people try to seek happiness through controlling the environment. Sixth point I mentioned was that happiness protects from disillusionment. It protects from disillusionment in three areas. We become disillusioned from circumstances of life, and we looked at Philippians 4:11 and 12, where Paul said that he learns to live in whatever circumstances he's in, uh, whether he has had abundance or prosperity. He has learned the secret of being filled and hungry. He can do all things by means of Christ who strengthens him. We're also disillusioned by regarding the details of life, and the passage there was Hebrews 13:5 and 6 recognizing that God will never desert us, He will never forsake us, what we learn to say is that the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what shall man do to me? In other words, we will lose the details of life. You can count on it. Whatever it is that you have or possess or own or have in your environment that you think makes you happy, you will lose it. It will eventually uh, be stolen, break down, rust, uh, need to be cut, weeded, painted. Uh, eventually, you'll have to sell it, or perhaps it'll need to lose 10 or 15 or 50 pounds, or whatever it may be that you think makes you happy, it will change and it will not be the same. So we become disillusioned regarding the details of life. God is the only one who doesn't change. The details of life will always change. And then we become disillusioned with other believers in life. Whenever you get your eyes on people, they will fail you. Every person that you could put your eyes on has a sin nature. And you may just discover that that person that you idolize, that person that you've established as some sort of, of a role model, is a person who has a sin nature, and the area of their sin nature may be just the opposite of your sin nature, and they're going to commit some sin that absolutely shocks you and is appalling to you, and you're going to think they're just a real loser in the Christian life. Of course, now you're arrogant and in judgment, so you've become the loser. They're just uh, committing the sins that come naturally to them, just as you commit the sins that tend to come naturally to you. But we will always become disillusioned about believers, so the solution is Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So 6a, or excuse me, point 6, happiness protects from dissolution in three areas. And seventh point, happiness is related, first of all, to fi- having a right relationship with God. This begins by being oriented to his justice through faith alone in Christ alone. Now this takes us up to Psalm 51.12, where after his uh, sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, David is finally confessing his sin, and in that confession he says to God, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And the principle in that first part of the verse is that joy begins at salvation. We can't have real joy until, first of all, we are in right relationship with God. Secondly, post-salvation joy increases as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit and study His Word. In the Old Testament, the principle didn't involve the Holy Spirit, but it was related to His Word. And we looked at Nehemiah 8.12, where the people were celebrating because of the words which had been made known to them. They had heard the reading of God's Word, and that produced joy in the people as a response. Point number eight, therefore, True happiness is found only through grace. If you're not grace-oriented, you can't find true happiness. Psalm 31:7, David said, "I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness." The Hebrew word chesed, meaning God's loyal, faithful love, His grace—all of that is piled into that one word. I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness, because thou hast seen my affliction, thou hast known the troubles of my soul. The solution is not that the troubles and the affliction are removed, but the happiness is based on understanding God's grace, that he is giving us all that we need to live in the midst of any situation. Then we have uh, point number nine, inner happiness is confined to the plan of God. Inner happiness is confined to the plan of God. You enter into the plan of God at salvation, and you stay in the plan of God by walking by the Spirit. But when you sin and you're ejected from, and I'm using the term plan of God in terms of God's plan for the Christian life, when you sin and you're out of fellowship and outside of God's uh prescriptive will God's uh, revealed will for your life then you are living on carnality living on the sin nature and you will not have happiness happiness comes only through learning doctrine applying doctrine by means of the Holy Spirit John says in first John 1 4 and these things we write so that our joy may be made complete happiness is developed or completed through learning doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying it to your life. This brings us to point number 10, that the ultimate in happiness in time begins with the filling of the Spirit. The ultimate in happiness begins with the filling of the Spirit and is developed by consistent, by a consistent walk by means of the Spirit. Only as we walk consistently by the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit developed. The fruit of the Spirit is love Joy is the second category mentioned. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the fruit of the Holy Spirit based on walking by the Spirit. Remember Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So happiness can only come when we have assimilated God's Word into our soul. Point number 11 then, God has designed this inner happiness to be permanent and is stabilized through the grace-learning spiral. Now remember the grace-learning spiral is the idea that the pastor-teacher communicates the Word, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, But he doesn't understand it for us. He makes it clear so that we can understand it. We have to exercise our volition at that point in order to think it through and understand it. And then it becomes gnosis. At that point, it becomes gnosis. See, a lot of people think they even have gnosis simply because they can regurgitate what the pastor says. They've sat under a pastor for... Uh, any number of years, and they've learned to regurgitate what he says and how he says it, but they don't un- really understand it. And I, this is one of the things that I like to do when I'm uh, giving an ordination exam is to give thought questions as opposed to simple uh, definitions or terms, is to see if somebody can think outside the box of typical uh, terminology that they they may have heard. Over the years, I've had opportunities to talk to people who have been uh, on doctrine for many, many years. But as soon as you start talking to them in terms of a slightly different vocabulary, in terms of a more traditional uh, biblical vocabulary, they're absolutely lost because they don't understand what they're thinking about in the first place. If you understand something, you can put it into other words. If you can't take a principle and put it into your own words, you don't understand it. All you can do is repeat what somebody else has said. But you have to understand it as Gnosis before you can believe it. You cannot believe what you do not understand. Now, I may teach a doctrine, and you may not understand all of it, but that which you understand, you can believe. But that's the way it is for all of us in the learning process. We learn more and more as we go along. We learn line upon line, precept upon precept. And we may understand only 1% the first time we hear it, but we can believe it. The next time we hear it, we may learn another 2 or 3%, and we can believe that. So there is a progress to growth. But you can't understand what you don't, I mean, you can't believe what you don't understand, so you have to, at that point, exercise positive volition again, and decide whether or not you believe the doctrine. At that point, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, it is converted into epinosis doctrine epinosis doctrine is usable doctrine it's not used doctrine it's usable it's potential in your soul and once again you have to utilize your volition to decide when and how you're going to apply that usable doctrine to various circumstances. This is the grace-learning spiral, but the whole situation has to function under the concept of walking by means of the Holy Spirit. When we're in fellowship, it is God the Holy Spirit that is working in and through this process to produce in us this the fruit of the Spirit. So God has designed... Uh, inner happiness and joy to be a permanent feature in the believer's life, stabilized through the grace-learning spiral, which includes walking by means of the Spirit, uh, learning doctrine, assimilating it into our thinking, and then applying it from situation to situation, uh, no matter how much personal suffering, adversity, or even prosperity might be present. Jesus said in John 17:13 and 14, In his high priestly prayer, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy made full in themselves. So he relates the things he spoke in the world, doctrine, to the joy that was brought to completion or made full in the disciples. Verse 14, Uh, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we can have joy even in the midst of persecution and rejection. Jesus went on to pray, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And that is the context of his statement in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Inner happiness is based on learning doctrine, which develops a capacity for love, relationship with God, and capacity for life. And this is sustained by learning the Word. Yeah, I turned it off. Now everybody's gun shy. Whenever the screen goes blank, they think the projector went off. Point number 12, there's a daily... Development of capacity for happiness. This is a daily development. It isn't something that just happens in a one-shot thing. You have to take in the Word day in and day out. So as you grow spiritually, increment by increment, then that capacity for happiness develops. Matthew 4.4, Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Just as you feed more than once a day or once a week physically, you need to feed on the Word of God more than once a day, more than once a week. You need to constantly take in the Word. You can do this through tapes. You can do this uh, by coming to class. You can do it by just rehearsing a few things in your mind. You don't always have the opportunity to be listening to a tape, but you do have the opportunity to recall what you've learned and to think about it. That's what the Bible calls meditation. Jeremiah 15:16, 16, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Yahweh Elohim, of hosts. So joy comes from eating God's Word, that is, assimilating them into our thinking. And then James 1.25 states, But one who looks intently, that has to do with a close, concentrated, focused look at the Word. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, that is, application of doctrine, walking by means of the Spirit, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed, Makarios, happy in what he does. So happiness comes from a study of God's Word and abiding in it in terms of application. It's a daily process. Point number 13, inner happiness is commanded for believers in the spiritual life in phase 2. Happiness is mandated to the believers. Uh, Jeremiah 15:16, uh First John 1 John 4, and that comes through the command to take in the word. Point number 14, the relationship between the Lord's perfect happiness and the believers church age believers perfect happiness is given in John 15:11. John fifteen eleven Jesus said to the disciples, These things, that is the doctrine that he has taught, and in context, that's the doctrine of abiding in Christ, and which is tantamount to walking by the Spirit. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Once again, we keep seeing this terminology of joy being made full, which indicates that it is a progressive incremental development. So point number 14, the happiness that the believer has, the perfect happiness that the believer has, is derived from the Lord's perfect happiness, and that, of course, is a grace gift to the believer. Point number 15, just as the Lord never lost his perfect happiness during the incarnation and still experienced sorrow and grief, so the believer can still have perfect happiness while at the same time experiencing sorrow and grief. They are not mutually exclusive. And then the final point, point number 16, you can't try to build happiness on happiness. In other words, happiness is not the result of being happy. Happiness is a result of doctrine in your soul. Happiness is not even the result of the right type of mental attitude. Now, as we go through 3 John, one thing that I have been developing on the side is application of these principles that we see within the framework of Scripture. And one thing that has impressed me is going back and reading through the Psalms, especially the Lament Psalms. When we studied Psalms a few years ago, I categorized them in terms of uh descriptive praise psalms, Thanksgiving psalms, and lament psalms. In a lament psalm, you trace the thinking of the psalmist, the writer, whether it's David or one of the other psalmists, as they encounter some sort of adversity, and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And at the beginning of some of these psalms, you just think, this guy is so out of fellowship. He's not. He is just being honest with God in relationship to the difficulties he's encountering, and he's crying out to God. But you do see a mental Attitude shift as he goes from focusing on the problem to focusing on the character of God, to the happiness and stability that results from that, and that gives us a a rationale, a model, let's say, for the rationale that is that we use in going through a crisis. I want you to turn as we close this morning to Psalm ninety-four. Psalm ninety-four. What we're going to do after this, as we go through this passage in Second or in 3 John 3, talking about walking by means of truth, crucial factor of this is what we see in all of these psalms, and that is the utilization of the faith rest drill. So I want to take some time to go through the whole process of how you claim promises. See, walking by means of the truth, truth is the word of God. How do you walk by means of the truth of God's word? And so we will look at the basic foundation in terms of the faith rest drill. And so I want to take some time to go through various promises, familiar promises, promises you hear me recite frequently. I want to look at them in context. I want to look at them in the the scriptures and take them apart and show how you take those promises and apply them in the midst of a difficulty. Well, if you look at Psalm 94, Psalm 94 is actually a communal lament. It's not talking about the problems and individuals going through, but it is an expression of the community of Israel as a whole being abused and treated in an unrighteous manner by their enemies. We don't know the exact historical context. We're not told the precise context of many psalms, and I think there's a reason for that is because it allows for a more universal application. But I want you to note two verses, two key verses as we talk about happiness and joy. First of all, verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed, that is, or happy is the man, Asherah, happy is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug, Uh literally by, not for, but by the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. That's the core of the psalm, but it talks about the happiness. And then we see, and, and the idea there is that that personal core happiness. And then skip down to verse 19. Verse 19. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. And there that word delight brings a focus for us on the concept of happiness. It is an understanding that even in the midst of all of my anxieties, even as they multiply around me and the worries, anxieties, and fears run rampant, through my soul even then your comforts that is your consolations which come from doctrine they delight my soul it's an interesting word there it's sha'a which is a pill pill imperfect which is an intensive form that these take delight my soul my soul takes pleasure it has a an excitement a thrill that comes from these comforts now let's look at the psalm as a whole this is a psalm that any one of us might Utilize at different times in our life, especially if we feel like we have been dealt with unfairly or unjustly by someone. Perhaps a time of rejection over something. Perhaps a time, uh, in some situation where some individual has treated us in a very unjust or unfair manner. Where someone is clearly out of line and we cry out to God for vengeance. And this is the situation here in Israel that at this time they were being uh, overrun by those who were uh, enemies of the Lord. It was a time probably of discipline in either the north or the south, when they were being overrun by a foreign power. And so they were crying out to God for vengeance. At least that's what it looks like in the English in verse one, "O Yahweh Elohim, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs." The speaker here addresses a cry to the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now, the word that is translated vengeance here really doesn't mean vengeance. See, the word in English of vengeance has an idea of revenge, getting back at somebody. And that is not the connotation of this word in context. This is the Hebrew word nakam, N-A-Q-A-M. And the word "nakam" brings into focus the righteousness and justice of God. Nakam, N-A-Q-A-M. And the word has the idea of vindication within the framework of a judicial system. This is not talking about a personal vendetta, but vindication. It has a the idea of bringing into effect justice, bringing about judicial retribution. Now, these are ideas that are very confusing to many modern Americans because the uh, media often, in their superficial, shallow way, along with many liberals and bleeding hearts, don't understand the difference between justice and revenge. And this is never more clear than in the debate over capital punishment. Capital punishment was instituted by God and authorized by God in the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, where it talks about the fact that whenever man's blood is shed by man, then man should also shed his blood. God delegates to the human race the highest of all judicial functions and that is to take the life of another human being because of what they have done. It's not revenge. And every time there's one of these court cases that come up, somebody's going to be executed somewhere for something, everybody uses this word revenge. Don't ever let people use that word. Revenge is personal. Revenge comes from a self-absorbed, vengeful, vindictive, sinful mental attitude. Revenge is wrong. Vindication and justice are completely different. It is no more the act of revenge to cut a tumor, a malignant tumor out of your body, than it is to remove a criminal from life. That's the idea. It is they have forfeited... Their right to life because of their inability to control their sin nature. It is not about revenge. It is not about getting back at those, at, at someone who has done us wrong. And that is not the idea here. It is not the idea of vengeance. Everyone's familiar with the verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. This is the prerogative of God as the supreme judge of the universe. And he is the one who is absolute uh, absolute righteousness and absolute justice, and this is a cry to the the supreme court of heaven. This is an appeal to the righteousness of God to deal justly in an unjust situation. So the psalmist cries, "Rise up, O Judge of the earth, and render recompense to the arrogant." And then he cries out something that is often the cry of the soul of the believer. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? It seems like those who have it in for us are successful, and they continue in success, and they grow in success. And it's like, God, are you asleep at the switch? Are you going to continue to let this unfair, unjust situation go on? Is there no vindication anywhere? Do you listen to my prayers or are you busy with somebody else? And this is typical. Notice the honesty of the psalmist here in asking God, how long are you going to let the wicked be successful? And then he describes the activities of the wicked in verses 4 through 7. And here we see that the arrogant assume that there is no accountability. See, that's the whole issue in paganism today is that people have denied that there is a creator and therefore there's no ultimate accountability so man can do whatever it is he chooses to do. Verse 4, they utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your heritage. Notice the doctrine there. That he's using, he's going back to God's covenant promises to Israel, in the Mosaic covenant and in the Abrahamic covenant, and he's reminding God that Israel is, a, is a, a one of his his adopted firstborn. Now this is important. This is a rationale that he is using in prayer. He goes back to doctrine and his and the positional relationship of Israel to God. And he points out the injustice of the enemy. They slay the widow and the stranger. They murder the fatherless. In Psalm 68, he talks about how God will be a husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless. So he is appealing to God's promised relationship to the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. And the attitude of the pagan is... The Lord doesn't see, neither does God, the God of Jacob, understand. God really isn't there. It's implied atheism. That God is not there, and there is no accountability. Then in verse 8, we have a retort from the psalmist. And he says, understand you senseless, are you brutish? People among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? See, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He acts as if there is no accountability. He who planted the ear, and this is the retort, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? See, you've got an internal contradiction in the position of the unbeliever. God is a God who created all things, so he appeals to the creator-creature distinction here, that as the creator he made the ear, therefore he hears all things. As a creator he formed the eye, therefore he sees and knows all things. He is the one who instructs the nations. He is the one who teaches man knowledge. In fact, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. The character of God here is omniscience. So as he, in his rationale, he He's thinking about God's promise to Israel, and you can think in terms of whatever God's promise is to you as a church-age believer and your position adopted into the royal family of God and all the privileges and assets that God has given you. And then he moves from that to thinking about the character of God and the attributes of God. And remember, there's over 7,000 promises in the Word of God, and almost all of these promises can be tied directly to an attribute of God. So when you're in the midst of adversity or crisis, the thing to do is go back to the character of God to think through the different attributes and how they relate to your circumstances. And a result of this now is that he has moved from focusing on the problem and crying out for vengeance or for justice in verse 1 to focusing on happiness in the Lord. It belongs to the one who is instructed by the Lord, the one who is taught out of his law, the one who has doctrine in his soul, and this is what gives him rest in the midst of adversity, verse 13. He has rest until the pit is dug by the wicked, allowing them enough rope to hang himself, we'd say, out west, uh, giving them enough of an opportunity to destroy themselves through their own machinations, and then... Uh, verse 14, the Lord, reminding them of the faithfulness of God, the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And uh, verse 16, he goes on to talk about who will rise up for me, calling for justice, who will defend me against the evildoers, who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity. There is only one who stands for us, verse 17, and that is the Lord. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled In silence. And the idea there in verse 17 is a profound idea that unless the Lord uh, had helped us and helped me, my soul would have settled in despair. It is God that keeps us from that total despair that is overwhelming in life. It is the mercy of the Lord that sustains us, verse 18 And therefore, in the multitude of my anxieties, it is God's comforts that delight the soul. So this is an idea of how a rationale for happiness works. When you're in the midst of crisis, you focus on the word and think through God's character, think through his attributes, think through his promises and the purposes of of the plan of God, the result is the conclusion of confidence that the psalmist expresses in verse 22. But the Lord has been my defense. Notice the past tense there, the the uh, in in the Hebrew that emphasizes that even through all of the times of injustice, all the times of rejection, all the times of being uh, abused. Even in that time when we didn't think the Lord was there, the Psalmist recognizes the Lord has always been my defense and my God the rock of my refuge. So as we go grow in the Christian life, third John three, we recognize that there are different kinds of happiness, but happiness comes from ultimately from the Lord, from walking by means of the Spirit, and the walk by means of the Spirit is the walk in truth. So in 3 John 3, John says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children, excuse me, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came, and testified of the truth that is the doctrine that is in you just as you walk by means of truth. So walking by means of truth involves the faith rest drill, utilizing the promises of God in order to bring stability and tranquility to our soul in the midst of crisis. So we'll start looking at some promises in relationship to the faith rest drill next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to get into the mechanics of the spiritual life to understand happiness better, that happiness is a product of walking by means of the Spirit and growing according to the truth of your word by assimilating it into our soul under the principles of uh, the grace-learning spiral. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we may uh, make them a part of our Christian life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is not based on a bargain with God. It's not based on good works, church involvement, church activity, ritual, or any other human factor. Salvation is based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. The way that you make that apply to you is through faith alone in Christ alone. The instant that you put your trust in Christ, then you are saved. You have eternal life. You are justified before God, and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.